Bienvenidos. Hello and welcome to City Break Seville, Episode 6, The Park and the Palaces. I thought about calling this episode the Wander Around Seville and Enjoy All the Lovely Bits episode, but that's quite long for a title. What I really wanted to do was just wander around four places, all lovely to go and see. They've got a bit of history and culture attached to them, and there'll be a little bit of that here and there in the episode, but really, They're just places to go to soak up the atmosphere, enjoy the beauty and just accept that you probably don't know exactly what you're seeing in every detail. So I've chosen one park, the Parque Maria Luisa, and three palaces. There are many more than three lovely palaces in Seville, but as I keep saying, these podcasts will never come to an end if we do everything too thoroughly. So the palaces I chose are the Casa de Pilates, the Palacio de las Dueñas, and the Palacio de Lebrija. So let's start straight away with the park. To give it its full name, the Parque Urbano Infanta Maria Luisa Fernanda. There's something about Spanish names, isn't there? It's so romantic and lovely. It's a glorious green lung in the middle of the city, quite unlike lots of other parks in other cities across the world, because it's got a real oldie-worldie beauty. It is also a nice, cool, shady place to hide away from the sun, And if you go and visit, I think you'll pretty soon become aware that it's not just somewhere where the tourists go, although it certainly is that too. It's actually somewhere where the people of Seville like to hang out, relax. I think that's something to do with its rather stately atmosphere. It's full of wide avenues with with horse-drawn carriages clip-clopping along. There are lovely tile-covered benches, a bit art deco in style. You can wander about and happen across a pool here or a fountain or a statue, or one of the 20 or so pavilions which were built to represent different countries. Much of what's actually been built here was put up in the early 20th century with an exhibition in mind. For 1929, there was going to be the Grand Exposición, which was aimed at promoting Spanish-American links. They'd obviously been very big in the 16th century. They'd fallen off a bit, and it was planned to have this wonderful exhibition to celebrate all things Spanish, and particularly the links between Spain and America. And for that reason, if you look at a map, you'll see that the geographical two focal points of the park are the Plaza de España and the Plaza de América, so called after each of the two countries, Spain and America. Going back a little in history, the whole thing began really in 1848, when the Duke Juan Antonio de Orléans arrived in Seville, decided he was going to settle there, He brought his wife, Maria Luisa, and they bought a palace, not actually one of the palaces I'm going to feature, a different one, called the Palacio de San Telmo, and they bought two pieces of land around it to turn into gardens. And work began, and they lived there for a good many years. And then, in 1893, the elderly Maria Luisa, by now a widow, gave as a gift to the city of Seville part of the gardens. So from that date onwards, they belonged to the city for everyone to enjoy. Early in the 20th century, around about 1910, planning began for what I've seen described as the Ibero-American, so American and Spanish, exhibition. The two plazas were created. So let's have a little bit of a look at those first. If I start with the lesser known of the two, the Plaza de América, the focus of that is a lovely building with blue and white ceramic facade called the Pavillon Real, so the Royal Pavilion, which was built as a memorial to Maria Luisa. It's surrounded by ponds and novelty fountains and statues. It's a lovely, idyllic little spot. 
and also nearby are two other buildings which were put up with the exhibition in mind and which are still there today for all and sundry, everyone, members of the public, to go and visit. And those are the two museums, the Museo de Artes y Costumbres Populares, so the Museum of Popular Art and Culture, good place to go if you're interested in Andalusian culture, actually. Entrance is free. There's a fantastic photo exhibition on the ground floor, large-scale coloured photos of all kinds of Andalusian food and festivals and costumes and all sorts, and downstairs an exhibition of Andalusian crafts. So little rooms, each one representing different things. You can see forges from the 19th century. You can see bread-making ovens, how pottery was made, leather tanning, agricultural implements, all sorts of things, and also mock-ups of houses from different eras. The building itself is quite something. When it was put up, it was called the Pavillon Mujeda, immediately telling you that there was some level of Islamic influence in its design. It's a brick building, but it's decorated with the most beautifully glazed ceramic tiles. And actually, if ceramics and Seville is your thing, one of the things that's also inside, which I forgot to mention, is a big collection of ceramics from the 14th to the 19th century and a lot of information about all the different styles and techniques. Okay, so that's one of the two buildings, and the other one is the Museo Archeologico, so the Archaeological Museum. 60,000 items in there, apparently, many of them from the nearby Roman town of Italica, but actually, in fact, spanning prehistory right up to the Middle Ages. Both these rather imposing buildings were designed for the exhibition. They were designed by an architect from Seville, who won the competition to get the commission and was called Anibal Gonzalez. It'll be no surprise to anyone who's ever had anything built that the whole thing went massively over budget. But he did leave a legacy of these two gorgeous buildings. So that's the Plaza de America. And the Plaza de España is the much better known one. I think it probably features in everybody's photo set from Seville because it's just such a beautiful edifice. The whole point of it was that it should look stunning and very Spanish. These things it definitely achieves. And so I suppose that's why people want their photos taken in front of it. It too was built for the exhibition. A thousand workers were drafted in round about 1914, and they set to work to create this, how to describe it, semicircular crescent of a building, 600 feet wide, with a lagoon in front of it and four little bridges crossing in various directions. They represent the four old Spanish kingdoms. The whole thing was designed to be a celebration of Spanish culture. So around the crescent, there are no fewer than 50 niches. Each one represents one of the 50 provinces in Spain, decorated with a ceramic bench and tile pictures of maps, historical scenes, all that sort of thing. It's very jolly and pretty. I saw in one guidebook it was described as exuding joie de vivre, and that does pretty much sum it up. But it's got an air of class about it as well. I think in the cast iron lampposts and the medallions on the walls with portraits of many famous Spaniards. There's a central fountain in the middle of the lagoon, and there's a balustrade decorated again with beautiful ceramics all the way around this lagoon. So the whole effect is just gorgeous. In 1928, when it was opened by King Alfonso XIII, he thought so too, and apparently as part of his opening speech he said, Gentlemen, I knew that this would be beautiful, but not so very beautiful. So when you first see it, I think you think, well, what is it and what's it for? 
But that's not the point of it. You should come to gaze and just wander about, perhaps buy an ice cream or hire a boat and splash about in the lagoon. And of course, take lots of photos. If you think you've seen it before, that may be possibly because it featured in the film Lawrence of Arabia, dating from 1962, when it was used as the British Army headquarters in Cairo. Okay, so that deals with the two plazas. The main point really, though, is the park, so everything in between. If you wander through there, you'll notice up to about 20 different houses that were all built for the 1929 exhibition. They all represented a different Spanish-speaking country, and they're designed to show that. Elizabeth Nash, author of Seville, Cordoba and Granada, described them in the following way. They're wonderful in their playful, outlandish variety. The tiny box covered with blue and white Maya motifs from Guatemala, and, at the other end of the scale, the bizarre eclecticism of the Peruvian pavilion, whose woodwork, ironwork and stonework are a unique specimen of Inca art. One last building I wanted to mention is the also very beautiful theatre, the Teatro Lope de Vega, built again for 1929, designed to be a casino theatre. I don't know if that's a thing in Spain, but sounds a bit of an odd mix to me. Anyway, it was copied really from similar buildings in Nice and Monte Carlo. It's a working theatre, 1100 seats, and it's named after Spain's most prolific dramatist. Apparently he wrote 1500 plays, and they call him the Spanish Shakespeare. Although I can't help wondering if you went round the world mentioning Shakespeare and Lope de Vega and asked how many people had heard of each, Shakespeare would get more yeses. Perhaps that's just my British insularism. Anyway, it is a working theatre, so if you think your Spanish is up to it, you could consider going to see a play there. But if not, and you don't want to miss it altogether because it is glorious inside, there's a cafe inside called the Café del Casino, which rejoices in a wonderful room called the Salon Circulaire, the Circular Salon, and an 18-metre-high central dome. It's kind of art deco meets faded elegance, and I think a cup of coffee there is an hour well spent. So, we've talked about quite a lot of the buildings, but actually, the Parque Maria Luisa is fundamentally a park. So if you don't want to go into any more buildings, you could really just wander about. There are a 100 acres of riverside terrain, designed allegedly with various inspirations in mind, Muslim, Italian, French, Andalusian. I can sort of see that. The long, straight rows and the fountains and the use of water and everything does look quite Islamic. The tiles from Triana give very much an Andalusian flavour. And actually, if you look at the way it's laid out with straight paths and squares of lawn in between, it does remind one a little bit of the Tuileries Garden in Paris. It's a very popular place to go. I think for a number of reasons, it's peaceful escape from the city, although in fact there's a busy junction just yards from one of the entrances, but as soon as you get inside, somehow you forget that. It's got these lovely shady tree-lined avenues, so you can escape from the sun. That's quite important most summer days in Seville. There's a lot of water, so that's nice on a hot day. Pretty fountains, a lovely little Isleta de los Patos, so ducks and swans and so on. All the benches are decorated with ceramic tiles, and you see ceramics elsewhere as well, in urns and on the fountains, or there'll suddenly be a little ceramic duck or a frog playing by a fountain. The horse-drawn carriages are very charming. When you look at them, they may turn out to be full of tourists snapping away, but they do lend a sort of fin de siècle atmosphere, I feel. 
And it's also just very obviously a place where civilians themselves take their children, people sit around, rest, relax, play. The atmosphere, I think, was summed up very nicely by the writer Laurie Lee, who went in the early 1950s on the visit that he then wrote about in his book A Rose for Winter. So here he is on what he saw the day he went. Children in large hats and long white pinafores bowled their grave hoops among the rose trees. Black-stockinged girls bent over pools, poking at goldfish with stems of lilies. Opulent mamas, ripe in black satin, drowsed at their ease on the blue-tiled benches. It was a landscape by Renoir or Steele, an end-of-century dream. We clocked our way along, smelling the oranges and roses, and passing the lacy girls, posed as if for old postcards among the flower beds. And a little bit later on in the same piece, he sums up the sort of lazy, languorous atmosphere, just the idea of getting away from the bustle of the city and finding peace and quiet, and writes, quote, So passed the gentle, slumberous afternoon, rolling down avenues of hornbeam and eucalyptus, through tunnels of fresh green, half dozing to the pony's sighs and the coachman's sonorous snores. I think that sums it up, really. If you feel you need a rest and perhaps a doze in the middle of a busy city break, then the Parque Maria Luisa is definitely a place to head for. Turning away from the park, then, I've chosen the three palaces. I'm going to go through them one at a time and just give little bits and pieces of info about why it is I think they're such lovely places to visit. So the first one is probably the most visited of all the lovely palaces in Seville, and that's the one that's called the Casa de Pilates, which translates as the House of Pilate. Popular, I think, because of its great beauty, because it's a chance to see a blend of architecture. If you go on a guided tour there, they will keep reminding you that you've got Islamic influences, you've got Gothic, there's Renaissance architecture. It's very civilian. And I think actually the curious name, the House of Pilate, that's a bit of an attraction as well. You sort of think, what could that be? So, building began in 1483. It was built for the man who at the time was the civil and military governor of Andalusia. So he'd made a bit of a name for himself. He'd got some land that came his way, I dread to think how, said in the guidebook, during the Inquisition. So I guess he must have been on the winning side somehow and uh, gained this land and decided to build himself a house. He died something like 10 years after this, so the work was carried on by his wife and his son and grandson and various other relatives, and it was particularly influenced by his son, another Spaniard with a lovely name, wait for it, Fabrique Enriquez de Ribera. He went on a pilgrimage to Jerusalem for two or three years from about 1518, where he got great inspiration for what he wanted this building to look like. Inspiration because to get to Jerusalem, he crossed Italy en route, arriving, of course, at the height of the Renaissance and being very taken with the art and the architecture that he saw. So he stored a lot of that away in his mind and thought, yes, I want to emulate some of that. His interest in the Renaissance led then to a link to Greek and Roman art as well. So you'll notice there's quite a lot of that dotted about. But because it was in Seville, he was also very keen to keep some of the Islamic influences as well. So you get this lovely mix. His nephew, the next generation, one Afon de Ribera, was a viceroy in Naples. And so another man who was very influenced by Italy 
and who wasn't a very important art collector. So that's fed in as well to the style of the place. Result, you've got this real mix of styles. If you look just at the main patio, for example, you can see some Islamic influence in things like the water being central, the fountain. There's lots of that lovely lacy plaster work, lots of coloured tiles with the geometric designs, archways as well. It's a large square patio and there's a first floor as well with a balustrade running round it and that's Gothic in style. And then just as you're getting your head round that mix, you'll notice that there are lots of classical statues too. Roman statues, Minerva for example. There's the statue of the Greek goddess Athena. And you can't always be sure that what you think you're looking at is exactly that. So for example, when you look at the fountain, the running water, you think perhaps of Islamic design. But then you find out that this particular fountain was specially commissioned from a workshop called the Aprile Workshop in Genoa in Italy. But there are local things too. So for example, the tiles, the colours and the patterns and everything do look quite Islamic. But in fact, they were made just across the river in Triana by the potters Diego and Juan Polido, made between, it's thought, about 1536 and 1538. So the patio is the central part of downstairs. There are corridors running along all four sides around it, a series of antechambers off those. There's a similar design upstairs. There's an upper gallery, again, around the central patio. But up there, the rooms are more furnished. I think the idea was that in the summer, people would live downstairs pretty much outside. And then in the winter, they would move to the slightly warmer upper rooms. They were much more furnished as well. And they've got wonderful names. There are the usual living and dining rooms and so on. But there's also a salita de fumar, so a smoking room. There's a library. There are lots of family portraits and other pictures. One or two quite well-known ones. There's a Goya picture of a bullfight, for example. Outside there's a garden, originally a kitchen garden, but with two lodges and a pavilion built in it. And again, a strange mix. You round a corner there and come across a statue wearing a Roman toga. The main thing I think people want to know about this house is why is it called the House of Pilate? People have said that perhaps it was modelled on the actual house of Pontius Pilate in Jerusalem, but apparently that's not right. There's a legend, probably half true, about where the name came from, and it dates from the pilgrimage I mentioned a few minutes ago that Don Fabrique made to Jerusalem. When he returned to Seville, he very much remembered a lot of what he'd seen and what he'd learnt, and there was one thing that struck him as being a real coincidence. So he'd been to see the courtroom where it's thought that Pilate washed his hands of Jesus and handed him back to the crowd. And he'd worked out that the distance from that room to Golgotha, the place outside the city, or Calvary as it's also called, the place where the crucifixion was held, the distance between those two places was exactly the same as the distance between his house in Seville, so this Palafia that we're in, and country home that he owned just outside the city. And he was very taken with this idea and he decided, perhaps on the experiences that he'd had of the Christian story as well when he went to Jerusalem, to set up his own version of the Stations of the Cross. These were places along the route from his house to the country house, which were places where you could pause and remember parts of the biblical story. And the very first one on this route was actually at this house, right by the main entrance, and he called it Jesus Before Pilate. And it's thought that that's why then the house became known as the House of Pilate. There are a couple of other legends associated with the house. I think these might be possibly less rooted in any kind of reality. I don't know. One of them's called 
the Cabeza del Rey Don Pedro, so King Pedro's head. It is in fact a bust of Pedro, Pedro the Cruel that is, you may remember him from earlier episodes, which can be seen in the main patio of the palace. And the story goes that Pedro, who was indeed very cruel, was out and about one evening and killed somebody. And he thought he'd got away with it, but in fact he was recognised a few days later by an old woman who'd witnessed the murder. And it's said that she recognised him because all his joints creaked as he walked along and she knew it was him. So she put this to him and he, I don't know if he admitted it or not, but he did allow, in inverted commas, a bust of his head to be taken prisoner. So he wasn't certainly going to be imprisoned himself, but he allowed a bust of his head to be taken away. And somehow or other, this ended up in the family who owned this house. And they've had it on display there ever since, and are said to have been very proud of having it, because they'd had a generation-long feud going on with the family of Don Pedro. And so they felt it was good to have his head imprisoned in their palace. Who knows if it's true? And the other legend is one which says that one of the popes, Pope Pius V in fact, sent an urn along as a gift to the household, and in the urn were the ashes of the Roman Emperor Trajan. He was definitely born in nearby Italica. Not quite sure whether the bit with the urn is true or not, but it's said then that this was given a place of honour in the library of the house until one day one of the servants, who possibly didn't know what it was or possibly didn't care, took it outside and scattered all the ashes on the garden. And everyone knows which spot this was, where the ashes were scattered, because that's exactly where the very best orange and lemon trees grow today. So have a look for those if you're wandering around the gardens. On to the second palace I wanted to mention then, the Palacio de las Dueñas. I have to say I think this was my top favourite of possibly all the buildings I saw in Seville. So Spanish, so beautiful. A lovely massive courtyard with ochre-painted walls behind it, plants and flowers and ceramic tiles and gorgeous archways and just view after view that's really beautiful. It's a late 15th century house, again, one which boasts of this mix of styles that seems to be so civilian. I saw it in a guidebook described as being Gothic, Mudéjar and Renaissance style with civilian touches. So there you go, at least four cultures all rolled up together. But the end result, as I say, is spectacularly beautiful. It's actually got the feeling of a family home, which it is, but it's particularly romantic for a couple of reasons, apart from just the fact that it's visually stunning. So one reason would be that it was the childhood home of the Andalusian poet Antonio Machado. He grew up here. There's a plaque to him on the wall, the entrance wall into the garden. His dates are 1875 to 1939. And in one of his books of poetry, he did actually mention this lovely garden. He wrote the following. My infancy is the memories of a patio in Seville and a bright garden where the lemon trees grew. He wrote that in a book of poems called The Campos de Castilla. His early poetry was very romantic, often on the theme of memories and dreams. He married very young. I think he was in his early 20s, actually, but his wife was only 15. And it was definitely a love match, I think. And she died a few years afterwards of TB. So a lot of his poetry relates to her. Might just quote you a few of his words on a couple of topics. So he was a very fervent supporter of the Spanish Republic in the Civil War. When things began to go wrong for the Republicans, he had to flee Spain. He and his family fled to the south of France in early 1939. And in fact, he wasn't there very long. While he was in exile, he died. 
But at some point, after it was clear how things were going to go in the Civil War, he said the following. For the strategists, for the politicians, for the historians, all this will be clear. We lost the war. But at a human level, I'm not so sure. Perhaps we won. And then just to finish and get back to what we're supposed to be doing, talking about the palace, here's the beginning of one of his poems, which is particularly pertinent for people who like travel. That's why I picked it. It's called Traveller, Your Footprints. And the first few lines read like this. Traveller, your footprints are the only road, nothing else. Traveller, there is no road. You make your own path as you walk. As you walk, you make your own road. And when you look back, you see the path you will never travel again. Traveller, there is no road, only a ship's wake on the sea. It's rather lovely, isn't it? And the other thing that I enjoyed about this palace particularly is the very much the feel of it being a family home and so much family memorabilia collected, belonging to the family of the Dukes of Alba. And particularly, I was a fan of the room which belonged to the elderly Duchess of Alba, who died in 2014. That was a point at which the palace was open to the public. Before that, it was just a family home. But the room that was hers was glorious. It was crammed full of all the stuff she liked, pictures and photographs and her writing desk, a massive jumble of memorabilia just everywhere, quite chaotic. And best of all, squeezed in on the floor, a raised wooden platform, which I read the sign told me, was her stage that she where she used to dance flamenco apparently she was very into flamenco she used to have dance tutors come to the house and standing on top of this stage is a model dressed in one of her favorite flamenco dresses a lovely silk printed dress with flounces and this gorgeous beautiful turquoise shawl that she wore over the top i don't know how late into her old age she danced but it did have the look that maybe she had kept going as long as she could and I thought that was rather lovely. I like to picture her there with her dancing tutor, clattering away on the stage and dancing alone in that beautiful dress. Thirdly then, the Palacio de la Buija, home in fact of another elderly lady who's left her mark in a very big way, the Countess of la Buija. She was an archaeologist, and this is the house which she bought in 1901. It actually dates from the 15th century, another one of these gorgeous buildings with a real mix of styles in it. And she bought it as a sort of treasure trove for all the things that she'd collected as part of her work. And so you can go in and just wander around and see all these gorgeous things. It's most well known, I think, for the mosaic flooring. So there are a lot of things in the house that are Roman remains from nearby Italica. And she's got enough of the mosaic flooring to cover most of the ground floor of the house. It dates from the 2nd and 3rd century AD. And alongside that, a lot of other Roman bits and pieces, glassware, coins, etc. There's also a very large collection of ceramic tiling. That dates from the 16th century, came to her from an old ruined convent that presumably she was working on in some capacity. A wonderful library. I do love other people's libraries and this is a glorious one. A lovely cosy room with 4,000 volumes, mainly books on antiquity and archaeology. Again, it just really feels like someone's den with all the things that they loved most in there. One of the things about it is it is actually in one of Seville's busiest streets, the Calle Cuna. But as soon as you get inside, you forget that because it's just a, you're surrounded by culture and beautiful artefacts and just seems like another world. It's yet another of these lovely palacios where 
Every time you step round a corner, some new beautiful vista appears, maybe a series of arches, one receding into the other, set off perhaps with colourful tiling. Or there'll be plants or a corner of mosaic flooring with some trees in little pots. There's the courtyard, there's the gallery. It's lovely. So there you have it. Four ideas for places to go and enjoy the really beautiful glimpses of the past in Seville. Things left to us by the artists and craftsmen of the past, passed on to us by people in past ages with a discerning eye and, let's face it, enough money perhaps to collect these things or commission them and buy lovely houses to keep them in. You can really go and spend an afternoon in another world in any of those places. So I hope I've given you some nice ideas for a way to while away a morning or an afternoon if you don't want too much traffic and stress and hassle. So that brings us to the end of the current episode. And just a pointer ahead to next week then, episode 7, going to cross the river to Triana, which is a very particular area of Seville, traditionally a working class district with its own history of factories and trades and very much a gypsy and flamenco connection. Links too to Columbus and the Explorers. We'll talk about all of that in next week's episode, for which I hope very much that you'll be able to join me. And for the moment then, I'm just going to thank you very much indeed for listening. Muchas gracias. And wish you goodbye then, Spanish style. Adios. <laughs> <laughs>